Thanks for joining us for the Bread of Life, a ministry of Church Partnership Evangelism and the Bread of Life Fellowship of Boise, Idaho. The Holy Spirit has come to make Jesus real to us and real through us. He comes to communicate the supreme importance of Jesus Christ above everything and everyone else. As you listen in today, we pray that the Spirit would advance this work in your life. Now here's our Bible teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. God has called the Christian to a life of holiness, and it is the call of the spiritual leaders of the church to help lead Christians into a growing holiness. This is what we call discipleship. Unfortunately, when I entered into the ministry, it was thought that the first step in discipling someone was to find out their unique temperament and from there craft a unique journey all their own as Christians. But the truth is, and listen to this, this is great news. Your life of holiness is not dependent upon your temperament. It doesn't start with your moods or even your unique personality. It starts with Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? This test basically has nine contrasting tempers that it tries to find and where you lay on the continuum between these nine contrasting things. So you were either nervous or you were composed. You were depressive or you were lighthearted. You were social or you were quiet. You were responsive or you were inhibited. You were sympathetic or indifferent, subjective or objective, dominant or submissive, hostile or tolerant, self-disciplined or impulsive. And you took the test, about 180 questions, to find out where you fit on this thing. And, and then you gave to other individuals when they came to you to grow. But you didn't start with God's word. You didn't start with what God commanded and what God desired and what God called from them. You started with their temperaments. And then you tried to figure out how to negotiate through those temperaments to get them to somehow ease their way into a certain kind of lifestyle and know what their limitations might be. It's just what you were. You were somewhere between all those things. And I have some advice for you, by the way. If you ever do take the Taylor Johnson temperamental analysis test, don't take the test when you're not in a good mood. (laughs) Take the test when you're in a really good mood. Take the test when the circumstances of your life are positive and looking good because you'll come out as a composed, lighthearted, social, responsive, sympathetic, objective, tolerant, self-disciplined person. (laughs) Don't take the test after having an argument with your newlywed spouse. (laughs) Don't do that. You'll come out scoring in all the negatives. You'll be nervous, depressive, quiet, inhibited, indifferent, dominant, hostile, impulsive. I think that's how I scored. (laughs) So, you know... That was the idea. It, it actually didn't work. It, it didn't produce people who were better disciples. It produced a level of introspection where we thought that the way to lead people into discipleship was to help them to discover themselves. And discipleship comes when you discover God. And you discover His goodness and His holiness and His life. And it's not dependent upon your temperament or your mood and And by the way, when that failed to work, this therapeutic model, church didn't leave that idea. So they transitioned. We didn't simply become the purveyors in that time when I was there. They were the primary purveyors of pop psychology. But later on, we began to be the purveyors of whatever medical treatment was out there. You know, if you've got a bad mood or you've got a bad disposition or you've got a problem, there's some course of medication that maybe you can be on and 
Let me just say to you right now that there's value in finding out what your temperament is and kind of how you're crafted and your personality type. And it's helpful. It can be helpful, among other things, learning how to relate to your wife. You find out that, oh, I'm all the bad things and she's all the good things. That's why, by the way, my wife has a noble marriage and I have a good marriage. <laughs> Tok spoke about that last week. So it's valuable, right? It can help in lowering your expectations in certain ways, which is probably helpful in life so you're not living under condemnation all the time. And, and actually there are times when certain medication and treatments are very important for an individual. But here's the good news. This does not have anything to do or it's not dependent on a life of holiness. It's not the thing that regulates and determines whether you become increasingly more and more like the Lord Jesus and more and more godly in your walk. No, for that, you need to know Him. You need to come before Him and you just submit to Him in obedience. And as you begin to regularly and consistently bow before Him in obedience, turning to His will apart from what you feel like doing or what your temperament wants to do, you open up the pathway for God to pour more and more of His life in you and to conform you more and more into His image and you begin to live a holy life. It's along those lines that I want to keep talking to you. This whole idea of what is the pathway that opens up this obedience that we have or this life of holiness that we have. And I've said that it is a life of obedience, but I want to extend that and I want to add another idea to the idea that obedience is the pathway through which God brings holiness to us. And I want to add to this idea another idea. It's not simply obedience, but it's also our separation to Him. It's our separation out to Him. It's our consecration or the dedication of ourselves to Him. This idea that we turn and make ourselves and turn ourselves to be separate from other things, to be separate to God, and it's the positioning of ourselves in this way also that allows God to bring to us and pour upon us His holy life. So, I told you to turn to Leviticus chapter 20. And I want to read to you verses 24 through 26 of Leviticus chapter 20. God has redeemed the Jews. He's taken them out of slavery in Egypt. He's brought them into the promised land of Canaan. Now he sets before them a series of laws. And these very laws are intended to separate them from the sinful practices and patterns and behavior and idolatry of the pagan Canaanites that surround them. And they're to go into this land that God has for them. They're to press out the Canaanites that live there and they're to take on this land and live in that land. But they're to live differently. They're to live completely separate to God. God says, But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore distinguish between clean animals and unclean, between unclean birds and clean. You shall not make yourselves abominable by beast or by bird or by any kind of living thing that creeps on the ground, which I have separated from you as unclean. And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Now, I just have two points for you this morning. The first point is that holiness requires our separation from that which defiles. You look at the laws that God gave to the nation of Israel in order to maintain their separation, and you'll find out that primarily these laws related to what they could eat and what they could touch. I can't go into this in great detail, but basically they could only eat 
meat from certain animals. They could not touch anything that was dead or that had a skin disease. These things would make them unclean. And then you have to go through various rites and rituals in order to reestablish their purity and their cleansing before God. Eating the wrong thing, touching the dead thing or the diseased flesh would render them unclean. And behind these commands that God gave was this idea of separating themselves from the infections of sin and death. The idea here is that sin had come upon a fallen world and that the sin had permeated the material world. So that, for example, all the green plants that God gave to men in order that they might enjoy it and have for themselves, well, they were no longer healthy for them. Some of those green plants were poisonous. You can't eat all of them now. You can only eat some of those green plants. And all of the animals in the world, some of them as well, God determined were to be considered repulsive to eat. By the way, this is somewhat natural in every culture in this society. I don't know why it is. People in every society can eat certain things and they find other things repulsive to think about eating. They just can't bring themselves to do it. For example, I don't know of a society where they eat cats. They don't eat cats. There are societies, though, where I remember being with my friend who lived in Kalimantan. And there they eat dogs. And everywhere we went, Abraham, every time he saw a dog, instead we'd say, oh, what a lovely dog. Abraham would go, hmm, what a lovely looking dog. And he meant something totally different than I meant when he was looking at that dog. I wouldn't eat a dog. That's repulsive to me. That's awful. They'd eat a dog. It didn't bother them. But there were other things they wouldn't eat. I had a friend of mine from India that went with us to Cambodia with a group of Filipinos. Filipinos will eat about anything. And they were driving through Cambodia, and they were stopping at places, and they were eating all kinds of strange foods. And this was totally alarming to this Indian brother of mine. And when he came back, his complaint was what the Filipinos were eating. He said, these people are barbarians to me. Somehow. In the mind of every culture, there is this idea that there's things that you can eat and you can't eat. And behind it, stealing away behind it, is the idea that some things are unclean and that they somehow defile you and some things don't. And this was something that God was also putting before the people. And the purpose was to separate them, to separate them from the infections of a fallen world as much as possible. And in so doing, separate themselves from those people and those nations who did not guard themselves, not simply from what they ate, but from the corruptions of sin and from the evil infection of sin that had come upon their world. And so in this case, God wanted to keep the nation of Israel separate from the Canaanites. So he gave them these laws of what they could touch and what they couldn't touch and what they could eat and what they could not eat. The question we have to ask ourselves is, where is the defilement that we are to guard ourselves against in our day? Where are the areas that we're to separate ourselves? And I'd simply say this, that it's found, the defilement is found, the thing we're to separate ourselves from is those things where our attitudes and our actions are not encouraged to be in full surrender to God alone. Any place, any point, anything that doesn't encourage the full surrender of obedient surrender of my attitude and my actions to God's will something that I'm going to separate myself from. So let me suggest to you three things. The Bible is very clear that we must separate ourselves from. We must separate ourselves from a compromised relationship with the world. We have to separate ourselves from a compromised dependence upon our own flesh. We have to separate ourselves from a compromised submission to Satan and his rebellion. First, we live separate from the dictates of the world. There are different meanings to the 
use of the word world in the Bible and in the New Testament in particular, but there is at times, many times, an expression of the world when the, the word world is being used that's embodying a humanistic philosophy, a manner of thinking and pursuing life that governs the age in which we live. It's called the world. It's a humanistic philosophy, and at the base of that philosophy is the idea that the most important thing is the pursuit of your own self-fulfillment, the pursuit of your own happiness. That's worldly thinking. It's what regulates the way people live. They live in a society which basically they compute through, how does this advantage me? Even their interest in their own children oftentimes is not a love for the children per se, but it's a love for their children because of the extension of them and their own interest and their own influence and their own power and their own reputation. And this is worldly. The spirit of life that rules the ages where people orient themselves to fulfill their appetites and satisfy their covetous dreams. And through this, they seek to claim their sense of significance. If I can just fulfill enough of my appetites, if I can just pursue and realize things that I covet and I want that others have that I want for myself, I can feel significant about myself. And that's the philosophy behind the world. Hey, thank you for listening today to The Bread of Life. We are an outreach of the International Mission Ministry Church Partnership Evangelism. CPE's mission is to equip and engage Christians around the world in personal evangelism, discipleship, and church planting. We've been at it for over 30 years, working in over 90 different countries with multiple denominations and missions organizations. And we rely upon your gifts to continue this work. To learn more about our ministry and how you can give to support it, go to breadoflifeboise.org. Until the next time, may the Lord bless you.